This is Spiritual Principles for Emotional Healing with Dr. Denise Johnson, a show dedicated to the integration of spirituality, faith, mental health, and emotional wellness. I believe where your spirit leads, your emotions, power, and destiny will follow. Welcome to the show, everyone. You are listening to Spiritual Principles for Emotional Healing, and I am your host, Christian emotional wellness expert and licensed mental health professional, Dr. Denise Johnson. And the excellent topic for today's show is managing microaggressions. And my guest is Dr. Bianca Cruda, affectionately known as Dr. B, obtained her Bachelor of Arts degree in psychology from Spelman College. Her Master's of Arts degree in 2013 and her Doctor of Philosophy degree in 2016, both in clinical psychology from the University of Mississippi. She completed her pre-doctoral internship in health psychology at the University of Florida in 2016 and a two-year residency in rehabilitation psychology at a veterans hospital. Over the years, Dr. B has served as an ad hoc and guest reviewer for scholarly journals and presented on topics in health and rehabilitation psychology. In her free time, Dr. B enjoys spending time outdoors with her two dogs and with her friends. Well, Dr. B, it is my absolute joy and honor and privilege to have you on the show as a guest today, and I want to thank you ahead of time for your openness of heart to talk with me and my audience today about this wonderful topic. Well, thank you so much for having me. I am very happy to be a part of the show today. Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to dive into the first question, which is, can you tell us some about your personal history? Um, sure. So I was born and raised in Jackson, Mississippi, um, okay. along with three brothers. Imagine that. I'm the only girl with three boys. Okay. So you can imagine what my childhood was like. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> And so growing up in the South is definitely a special place. And yeah. at an early age, I would say that our parents instilled many values, um, and that's one of which is obtaining a good education and spirituality. Excellent. Excellent. Okay, then. Can you tell us some about your spiritual history, speaking of that? Yes. So I... You know, typically spirituality and religiosity are two separate things, but we know that they can be connected. And so for me, uh, my spirituality is connected to my religion. Growing up in Mississippi, um, as you may imagine, the heart of the, the Bible built, um, yes. I grew up as a Baptist, a missionary Baptist. Um, wow. 
church member in uh-huh. in Mississippi, and I believe my home church is like a hundred and something years old, where we used to have bat- baptisms in the pond behind the church. <laughs> um, so it goes a ways back, um, yeah. and during that time, like we went to. Um, church regularly from a child to the point where, mm-hmm. I mean, my father was a deacon at age 23. Wow. Okay. So, right. yeah, so definitely, yes. um, you know, deeply rooted. And now I think that I've expanded my um, view of spirituality to include, like, mindfulness, um, you know, although, of course, we can't forget our roots, but I think it's right. more so about being a good person. Excellent, excellent. I love that. And, you know, I think that a lot of us in the audience can identify with that because, you know, we do thank our parents for giving us, you know, the early beginnings of the seeds of, I'll say, spirituality that they sowed in our hearts. But I think that it's the developmental task of every adult, right, to figure Mm -hmm. out what part of that fits for you and and then to expand it into something that fits your own you know, life experiences and worldviews. So I appreciate that about your Thank story. You. All Absolutely. right. How, yes. How does your personal and spiritual histories shape who you are as a person and contribute to what you're doing today? Um, well, I think that first and foremost, it makes me a caring and conscientious person. Um, which I believe definitely shines through in my practice. Um, I've joked before and said that psychologists make horrible business people because (laughs) we want to help everyone. And so we'll literally go broke because it's just something we want to do because we care that much about the individual. And that is tried and true when it comes to me and my um, my practice, and I think it also <laughs> gives me another way to connect with individuals, right? Yes. Like, I don't want that to be a barrier, and so, um, you know, gift and the curse, I guess, but for me, I think it's very much positive. Um, yes. I think that everyone deserves happiness, and I want to yes. be the vessel that helps to get them there. I love that. I love that on, on so many levels, on the level of, you know, I was in graduate school a long time ago, and back during those days, they really didn't teach us how to be a business person at all. So you're, you're so right about that. And then mm-hmm. uh, adding to that, I think there's something about being a spiritual person. There's something about that that helps you connect to the pain of others. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my daughter always makes fun of me because, you know, that can happen if I – you know, if I'm in a store and the cashier looks upset, you know, that I'm concerned and worried about her, you know, or back in the old days when we used to eat in restaurants, uh, you know, if the waiter or the waitress didn't, didn't, you know, they looked like they were having a bad day, you know, I would be compelled to ask them or to talk with them because it's a lifestyle, you know. It's not mm-hmm. just something that we do in the, within the four walls of our office, right? It's, exactly. It's, it's calling. It's a gifting. It's an anointing, uh, and, yes. and it's, it's just something that, uh, you know, is there all the time. So I appreciate yeah. your And people can see it in you. You know, you yes. may not even say what your profession may be, but all of a sudden someone is telling you all of their, their yes. difficulty to just talking to you and find that it's easy to talk to you. So absolutely. Excellent. 
So then, how did you develop an interest in African-American mental health? Um, Well, this goes back for many years. So my mom always um, jokes and laughs because since the age of probably 12, I think 12 or 13, I said I was going to be a clinical psychologist. And (laughs) somehow, you know, I made that happen. And one thing that I noticed um, when... I was younger, that mm-hmm. you would hear elders say, take it to the altar and leave it there. Yes. But you would find that individuals weren't necessarily leaving things at the altar. They would <laughs> still come back with their troubles. Right. And so I right. wanted to explore that. It's not to say that spirituality or religiosity isn't needed, but right. this can be an adjunct that and so really wanting to to evaluate okay so there's something on a different level here that we need to address there are some real difficulties here and so let's let's dive into that Um, spirituality and seeking mental health is um, help is not mutually exclusive and it's also a huge part of our physical health Um, hence my my health psychology background because our community, it runs rampant with high blood pressure, diabetes, yeah. Yeah. all of these different things. And so there's, there's just a wealth of things that I think contributed over the years. Yes, yes. And, you know, I, I love both of your points. You know, the first point being, and, and I think that a lot of church-going people need to hear this, is that you can believe in God earnestly and seek his face earnestly about a particular situation. But there still Mm -hmm. may be portions of that issue that have psychological implications or underpinnings or understandings that if you had, it would help propel you forward even further than you are with just the prayer. You know, because there's, there's certain wisdom that mental health can teach, certain insights that mental health can teach that I do believe go hand in hand with what the Bible says, and I agree with you that it's not mutually exclusive. And then the other issue of, you know, the health issues that African Americans have, a lot of it we know is due to stress. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, I know that spirituality and praying and reading the Bible, of course those things are excellent in terms of helping with stress, but still there's practices and, and insights and and tools that mental health people have that can just take what you're already doing further. So I agree with you on both fronts. Definitely. Excellent. So then how is African-American mental health different from general mental health? So kind of piggybacking on that that last question and thinking about um, African-Americans as a whole, there's this stigma, right? Okay. And, of course, it's not mutually exclusive, you know, to, I mean, exclusive to um, African Americans, but particularly in our population, there's a different set of expectations. Right. We are expected to be okay. Yeah. We are expected not to cry, to keep going, and right. in the midst of all of that, be the foundation for the family. Right. And that in and of itself is a lot. That can be overwhelming. 
You know, yeah. I joke and say that I've never seen my mother cry. Right. And so that giving to perhaps her strength, but then it also made me for what happened behind closed doors right. just so that she can maintain that. Um, right. So that's one way. Um, and I think that resources is a huge barrier um, that affects African-American mental health. And so financially being able to afford it, but not only that, having a therapist or someone to talk to who's culturally competent, because a lot of these things that we are experiencing, other individuals of another race or ethnicity don't necessarily experience those things. And so we need someone who can actually, you know, maybe not know exactly what we're talking about, but be able to empathize. Yes. Rather than antagonize. Excellent. Excellent point. Excellent. And, you know, let me me add to what you're saying. You know, um, I think what you're talking about falls under the larger umbrella of the effects of historic, current, and ongoing racism Mm. that black people in America and probably all over the world are experiencing. So to me, black people have the same level of stress that anybody has because life in and of itself is stressful. But then for black people, we add on top of that an extra layer, which is how do we understand, manage, and deal with the racism that we experience personally in terms of our family, uh, in terms of what we see in society, historically when we look back at history. You know, we have the extra developmental task of trying to make sense of that and trying to, you know, function well despite that added pain. And um, I think that has a lot to do with why uh, mental health issues are different for the two groups. You know, I I would even go so far as to say that if you have an African-American person in mental health treatment, if you're not talking with them on some level about issues having to do with race, culture, and managing uh, that extra stressor, then then I'm going to say that the the therapy is only doing half of its job, right? I would Um, agree. I would definitely agree because it's it's about navigating life. We have to navigate life differently. We have to speak differently. We have to be different from who we actually may be. And that can be taxing on other individuals because it's like, well, I can't be my real self. Right, right. And, you know, maybe a lot of people don't know that, you know, as an African-American, in order to navigate the systems in America that are inherently racist in terms of their policies and procedures, even though they may not mean to be, black people have to usually do twice as much work. I know you always hear people say that, right? You have to do Mm -hmm. twice as much work and be twice as good, but you still only get half of the respect uh, that the other people do. And, you know, mm-hmm. so, so any black person that you've seen, like, who's navigated the education system, that has navigated getting their Ph.D., right, that has navigated, mm-hmm. you know, being in any kind of profession or in any kind of work setting, typically mm-hmm. you have to play a role to a certain extent, right, in order to, to, to at least get some level of uh, rewards um, right. and acceptance. Mm-hmm. 
or even to simply be acknowledged on the same level or somewhat on the same level. Right. All right, so we kind of discussed some of this, but are there any other specific issues and challenges for African Americans regarding mental health that we haven't mentioned? Um, one thing that I would I would add is being able to acknowledge that there's an issue or that there's a problem because I think that for so long we've been taught and we've seen to just suck it up that sometimes we may not even realize we're stressed when we're stressed right. because right. that becomes a constant norm. Right. And it that is. in and of itself is problematic. Yes, it is. It is. And Yeah, because now it's the hardship and that mental anguish is the norm. And so we're operating at a higher level of anxiety or stress. And then what? Yes. You know. Exactly. 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 Well, I think this is the perfect place for a break. Please join us after the break. When my guest, Dr. Bianca Crudup from Crudup Psychological Services in Tampa, Florida, will talk more about managing microaggressions. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to Spiritual Principles for Emotional Healing, and I am your host, Dr. Denise Johnson, and the excellent topic for today's show is Managing Microaggressions, and my guest is Dr. Bianca Crudup from Crudup Psychological Services in Tampa, Florida. And uh, just to go along with that, I think that what the world has seen recently in, in terms of all the protests and marches that we've seen on the news is that, you know, black people also have to deal with their anger and their rage um, regarding their chronic mistreatment. You know, mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's a large, large burden because I'm going to say that anger is a normal response to poverty, to being marginalized, uh, to not getting what you deserve. I mean, it, it, it is a normal mm-hmm. response, but yet at the same time, obviously we can't act out our anger uh, all the time. So it adds, it adds even another level, you know, above stress, because there's, of course, mm-hmm. we have pain, we have sadness, we have stress, but then even on top of that, you have to do something with your anger and your rage at, uh, 
you know, being treated unfairly, you know, time and time again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're or definitely right. Be killed, right. Or watching people be killed before our eyes on TV again. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't you know. have to happen directly to you for you to be able right. to feel it and experience it. Right, right, right. And, and you know, as a black person, when, when you see someone like that killed in front of your eyes on TV, I mean, you feel the pain as if it is your brother, as mm-hmm. if it is your you know, your father, your uncle, as if it is people in your community. It makes you fear for your own safety and your own life and, and the lives of your children. It, it's more than just watching something on TV and being able to distance yourself enough from it and say, oh, well, that's terrible. But it, it really is something that, that, I don't know, cuts us yeah. to the core regarding even our basic safety and basic humanity. I agree, and it's also something about the boldness of the act, that you could be so bold to do something like this knowing that you're being recorded. Right. I just, you know, I guess it, it just really speaks to the, the depth of the divide between the races and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the negative feelings on both sides. You know, I, I really am hoping that with all the things that are going on in the news currently, I really am hopeful that, you know, we can come together finally, you know, as a world, as a society, and really try to understand the pain and the plight and the circumstances of one another. Um, so that, because, because it's going to take everyone to change this thing. It's going to take everyone uh, mm-hmm. to help put us all on a better path. Yes. Yes, I was talking with my family just the other day, and we were saying how this time it feels different. I agree. So I'm hoping that we will continue to be persistent um, and and continue to move forward. Yes, yes. I, I do believe the consciousness, not only of the United States, but of the world, has been impacted. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I believe that there are so many millions of people out there who want something better for us all. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, that's what makes me hopeful. Absolutely. Yes. So then, what exactly are microaggressions? And can you give us some examples? Sure. So I I found this this definition, and I really like how it sums it up because you can really say a whole paragraph explaining microaggressions. (laughs) Um, But essentially what it is is that these microaggressions are brief and common, um, daily, verbal, behavioral, or environmental communications that may or may not be intentional, However, it transmits a hostile, derogatory, or negative message to the person of a stigmatized group. And so some examples may be if um, a black man were to get on the elevator with a white woman and she clutches her purse. Right. Um, Or you are speaking with someone of another race, ethnicity, and they say, you speak so well. (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah, that's kind yeah. of that hidden one there. It's like, mm, wait a minute. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
you know, or even mistaking a female physician for a nurse. Right, right, right. So there are definitely several examples out there. Yeah, or another one that that I hear a lot is, well, you know, you're very pretty for a Mm. black woman, right? Mm -hmm. Or for a dark-skinned woman. Um, You know, you'll hear that often uh, as well. All right. So why are microaggressions so harmful, and what is their impact upon the target? So I think that it's so harmful because essentially the individual um, that it's toward is repeatedly being dismissed, alienated, insulted, and invalidated. And so then this in turn reinforces that power differential and that privilege. And so then it becomes very discouraging. Someone may say, well, what's the point? Why even try? Right, right. Right. Now I'm thinking about, again, this seems to be a common thread, that continual stress, and it can lead to depression because it's almost as if no matter how well you, you know, you maybe conquer something, it doesn't mean that it's going to be validated by someone else. Yes. Or even acknowledge. I agree. I agree. And what goes along with that is it's not just the one statement because any Mm -hmm. one statement may not be enough to harm someone. But like you said in the definition, it's the fact that it goes on multiple times each day, day after day, month after month, year after year. And I believe a lot of times it's the cumulative effect of those kinds of small statements within the mm-hmm. context of dealing with the greater racism in society and then just the yeah. stresses of being a human being. Um, you know, it just, it just adds, it adds so much more to the load uh, of the African-American. And, and I think the other thing about microaggressions that makes it so harmful is the fact that it's not as overt as explicit racism. You know, mm-hmm. if you go someplace and somebody calls you a obviously derogatory name, like, you know, like the N-word, right? I mean, you and everybody else knows immediately that that's inappropriate and unacceptable. But the thing about a microaggression is that a lot of times it's like a gray area. It's like mm-hmm. it feels disrespectful. It feels hurtful. It feels invalidating. But then you're not exactly sure you know, you're not really sure the person's intent. Did you really hear it this way? You know, I, I think that the, the uncertainty of it and the fact that it's always in the gray area, um, I think, adds to the stress uh, because, you know, you're not necessarily sure of what it is or what you should do. Right, because it can seemingly be benign, as you mentioned, and imagine going to HR saying, well, he told me I speak well. Right. People are going to say, well, why is she upset about that? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> What's the matter <laughs> Exactly. Like, oh, that sounds like a compliment. Oh, but people don't understand, and, and they may not, so we may have to explain it. You know, historically, back going back to slavery days, black people were not allowed to read and write, right? It was illegal. 
And mm-hmm. then after slavery was over, you know, during the period of Jim Crow when schools were segregated, uh, we didn't have uh, the same accommodations or academic materials uh, as other schools did. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, generation after generation after generation of people not being taught, I'm going to say, you know, I'll say standard English for lack of a better category. I mean, that that changes the way a whole group of people speak and, mm-hmm. and express themselves. And right. so typically for African Americans, it's only those of us that have, that have had higher education or who've been through excellent schooling, typically, that write in the standard way. Um, and, you know, as far as stereotypes go, because of, of the history of, of African Americans, people just automatically assume you can't write. They automatically mm-hmm. assume you can't speak. They automatically assume that if you don't speak and write well, you are stupid or less educated than other people. So, you know, to ask somebody or to say to someone that you write very well or you speak very well, the implication is, is that they thought it would be otherwise. And, um, exactly. you know, yeah. that's why it's so hurtful. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, it also plays into the fact that sometimes a long time ago, like we would develop some of our own language or right. like in the South, how we shorten things, like everything is yeah. shortened, no yeah. matter what. And I'll, I'll never forget that um, I had my white graduate advisor and again, we don't say the endings of our words. And so instead of saying ask, I would say okay. just ask, and he All told right. me, if you leave here speaking that way, people are going to think you're ignorant. Right. And until that day, I had no idea what he was talking about right. because I didn't realize I even did it. Right. So I guess my question would be, he was doing that to be helpful or yes. was he? Okay. <laughs> All right. Even though, even though I'm going to say it probably still is painful on multiple levels. Um, it definitely stung a little, um, but I think it, it made me more aware. Right. Okay, then. Um, what are some negative ways that African Americans respond to microaggressions? You know, I've I've been thinking about um, this question, and I think that on the obvious front, you know, maybe it's by assaulting a person because you reached your boiling point because, as we mentioned, it's the accumulation of these comments. But then when I stepped back and just looked at it, I really think that the most negative way, or maybe not – negative, but it's just not helpful. It's unhelpful. Um, the unhelpful way to, to address it would be to say nothing. Yes, I agree. I agree. Go ahead. So being able to speak up and say something about it and to let them, you know, the individual know, hey, what you said isn't okay. And that doesn't mean you have to spoon feed them all of the information. Give them something to go and look up. <laughs> You know, we we don't have to give all of the information. The information is out there, but helping them become aware of what's happening, you know, especially if it's unintentional. Right, 
Right. I I agree with you on all points. Uh, I do agree that one of the most negative ways is is assault would be one of them. But in in general, when black people appear to have what looks like an overreaction to somebody's words, uh, that probably would take precedence over what it is you're trying to communicate. People will just mm-hmm. see your anger, right? And a right. lot of times, you know, people shut down. Uh, in the face of, I'm going to say black people's anger in particular, because that that is another stereotype about black people is that they are excessively angry and they are Mm -hmm. excessively volatile and excessively violent. So if you give people a violent response, it's it's going to instill fear in them rather than hearing, right? Right. And and then I also agree with... uh, it's also equally negative, if not more negative, if you don't say anything as a black person, because then you, you end up just internalizing whatever mm-hmm. negative thing was said. Um, and again, you internalize it multiple times a day, day after day, month after month, year after year. It just really adds a, a burden and a load uh, to your you know, already high level of stress, just trying to navigate being a human being uh, you know, mm-hmm. during these times. Yeah, and then it can create cognitive dissonance where you end up battling yourself because you say, well, I should have said something. And then, you know, thinking, well, well, maybe it was best that I said nothing. So there's an internal struggle that then goes on between knowing the truth versus not saying anything. Yes, I agree. And you already mentioned some, but let me ask anyway, what are some specific positive or helpful strategies to manage microaggressions? And so along the same vein, um, definitely letting the person know that what they said um, or what they did is a microaggression to help bring about awareness. But one thing I have to caution individuals about is to remember your audience. Yes. If you have to work with this person every day, then there's a certain way you may have to address things versus if you were in the grocery store and you don't know this person at all. Exactly. So um, being tactful in, in your response. And I also think that it can be helpful to talk with others. Don't hold it in. Yes. Because I think that's really how we gain more knowledge about microaggressions is because people started talking to others and realizing that they're being told the same thing. Yes, exactly, exactly. I I love those points. I'm just remembering, you know, back in my own life when I was in graduate school, I was the only, I believe I was the only black person in my graduate class. So, Mm -hmm. you know, as the only black person in school trying to get a Ph.D., uh, Mm -hmm. people said inappropriate things to me all the time. But given that I was there by myself and I didn't have any allies, you know, fighting racism at that point would not have been wise on my part. Um, Right. Because, again, one person typically can't fight the system if what you're trying to do is get the reward that the system has to give. Typically, mm-hmm. if you're going to get a reward from a system, you have to at least on the surface appear to buy into and cooperate with what the system is asking you to do, whether you feel that it's fair or not. Um, yeah, you have to play so, the game. 
Yes, yes, right? Or play the role, right? And mm-hmm. um, so I agree with you. You know, people may be in settings where they cannot uh, directly speak on it, but then I also agree with you, talking to others, and that's what helped me, talking to other people, other black people, uh, mm-hmm. about their experiences with it, and, and then we could be a support to one another. Um, was was very helpful. Well, I think this is the perfect place for a break. Please join us after the break when my guest, Dr. Bianca Crudup from Crudup Psychological Services in Tampa, Florida, will talk more about managing microaggressions. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to Spiritual Principles for Emotional Healing, and I am your host, Dr. Denise Johnson, and the excellent topic for today's show is Managing Microaggressions, and my guest is Dr. Bianca Crudup from Crudup Psychological Services in Tampa, Florida. I I also believe that one of the things that current history is teaching us is that in order for something like microaggressions or racism to change, it's going to take the coming together of all groups of people to, mm-hmm. to, to make it different or better. So what I mean by that is, so for example, if a, if a negative comment is said about, let's say, you know, women, you know, mm-hmm. it would take men and women standing up to the agent that said something inappropriate about women to bring, a, to bring about change. Same thing in terms of microaggressions. You know, black people and people of color really do need to have allies outside mm. of their race who will yes. also stand up with them to, and speak truth to power so that something systemic will change. So I think our coming together uh, and, and taking a stand together, like we've been seeing on television, mm-hmm. is, is what it's going to take to make a system change um, and, and look at itself differently. Yes, I agree. Um, how do concepts like racial identity and racial socialization uh, help African Americans manage microaggressions? So I think, so when you think about racial identity and racial socialization, you know, you think kind of like birds of a feather flock together, right? So a lot of us are going to congregate with similar individuals or like-minded individuals. 
um, particularly of our race. And so I think that that coming together is huge. But as we're coming together, being able to uplift and praise one another, because essentially what I think these microaggressions are doing is that it's trying to um, disqualify you essentially right. as an individual in terms of your education um, or just being a person. And right. so being able to have people around you that are praising you, that uplift you, can be very, very important. Um, yeah. And educating each other and youth kind of about these things because right. – before putting a name to it, I did not know what people, what the, what it was called when someone would say something like that to me. Right. And when it first happened, or I first realized it, it really was a shock to me. Yes, it is. Um, it's very shocking. Yes. You know, it's almost as if you, you, you're stunned and you can't say anything. You can't move. You can't move your mouth anything right. um, because right. you are so shocked. And I think that nurturing one another is important. Now, of course, I may be a little biased, but going to an HBCU <laughs> like Spelman College, we yes. were nurtured. And yes. they will tell you, or at least they told us, we are nurturing you. The world won't. Right. So right. being able to be told that you know, we think that you're beautiful queens and kings. The world won't yes. be so kind. So helping right. you to have a game plan to navigate life outside of those protective walls. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and to add to what you're saying, I think that having a very strong racial identity as an African-American um, is helpful, like, like the lessons that they were trying to teach you at Spelman. You know, the literature shows that, that the more positive you can feel as a black person about being black, despite what society says, that the better you can feel about being a black person, the better, the, the more that you can appreciate the good things about your culture, the more that you can find value uh, in your culture. The more you can do that, it usually helps you stand up against microaggressions, not necessarily always in terms of speaking out, but mm -hmm. they can't tear you down as much if you know who you are on the inside. You know, right. if I know that black people have made contributions to the United States that most people never hear about, you know, if I remember, you know, that, that the black people in Africa, you know, thousands of years before America came to be, you know, had inventions and had wonderful societies and did great things. The more that I can, I can attach myself to those good things about being black, it doesn't hurt as much when someone tries to invalidate me. Um, and, you know, and the same thing with racial socialization. You know, there are a lot, there are a lot of studies that show that when African-American parents educate their children when they're little about the presence of racism and about the, the, the impact of how black people are viewed in, in this country, when little children are educated and armed with that information when they're young, 
typically when when they are confronted with it as individuals, it doesn't hurt as much because they can say, oh, this is what mommy and daddy were talking about. Oh, Mm -hmm. and and I remember, mommy told me to remember that I'm beautiful no matter what they say. So when you train your children to think that way when they're younger, that helps them also uh, stand up and and not be so devastated in the face of microaggressions. Yeah, and we're definitely seeing a lot more of that now via social media. Yes. And, you know, and, and social media is, in this regard, really is such an excellent vehicle. Um, it, it just bridges a gap, again, a, a, across all peoples so that we, we have the ability to view and see the lives and the plight of other people. It's just a wonderful education tool uh, mm-hmm. for us all. All right, then. You've answered this a little bit, but I'm, I'm going to ask it again. How does spirituality help African Americans manage microaggressions? Um, well, I want to first say that it helps us stay sane, for one. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. only thing we've ever um, had was spirituality or religion, even yes. since the days of slavery. Yes. Um, because it gives us hope and it gives us strength yes. to carry on. Yes. So yes. not only that, it's a, it's a sense of community as well. Yes. Um, yes. So I think that that is, is very important in terms of it managing is. those those microaggressions. It is. It is. And it also gives us the understanding that we were made in the image and likeness of God like everyone else is and that we were fearfully mm-hmm. and wonderfully made. And, you know, if we are loved by him, then what can man do or say really, you know? Right. Um, it just, you know, we are all valuable and precious and worthwhile and have a destiny in this earth realm to do. And, uh, you know, when you can connect with a larger picture or how the divine is present in each one of us, I think that helps us also rise above the things that man may or may not do uh, that are hurtful. Right. Okay. Um, Can you give us some case examples of African Americans you've helped manage microaggressions? Um, One uh, case comes to mind, um, this, this younger um, African-American female, kind of fresh out of college, and she has entered the workforce, which is male-dominated, um, her particular profession, male-dominated and um, dominated by white males specifically. And so she was having a difficult time navigating things because she felt inadequate. Um, it seemed as if nothing that she did was good enough. And then one day she was perplexed when she came up on one of her coworkers and they asked if they could touch her hair as they were reaching. <laughs> yes. As they're reaching to already touch it. Right. And so, of course, her first instinct is to swat the person's hand away yes. because yes, you are invading someone's personal space. Yes. However, yes. she had to try to gain regain composure and (laughs) ask her not to touch her hair. And so really having a conversation about that and she 
in some ways she felt as if she didn't do enough. Like maybe I should have squatted her hand. And I said, well, how would that have worked out being in the workplace? Right, right. Um, Rather than saying what you said, which was definitely appropriate if she's getting in in your personal space. Um, yes. But that that one was definitely one that stuck out to me in terms of having restraint and yeah. being able to face that. And let me just add to that. You know, maybe people don't understand how violating that is at a core level. I mean, to touch someone else's hair is something mm-hmm. that is done within intimacy between mm-hmm. two people. Only people who are intimate with one another have the right to touch the, someone else's hair. It, right. it's, it's not something that is done between strangers. It's not something that is done between peers. It is not something that should be done, right, at, at the mm-hmm. workplace. So right. to have someone violate you on that level. And, and then the other thing is, you know, people don't realize – Maybe people have been sexual abuse victims. Maybe people have been victimized by other things that would make you coming into their interpersonal space even more traumatic for mm-hmm. them. Um, you know, it's just, and, and I'm going to, and it's frightening. It's frightening. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and the other thing about it that's always uh, interesting to me is, I have never, as a black person, I have never been in a position where I felt I had the right uh, to mm-hmm. touch someone or to do that to someone. It's fascinating to me that people can, can actually grow up in a world mm-hmm. where their privilege allows them the right in their minds to do and to say things. Because as a black person, I've never lived under that. Or I've never had that kind of privilege. Well, you know, I'm going to tell you that you have just been a delightful guest. And uh, I am so uh, happy that we were able to talk about microaggressions because, you know, this is going to be our small contribution to changing society and educating people. And, uh, and you know, I'm just glad that you and I could be a part of that together. So thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a joy. Yes. So how can the audience contact you if they want more information? So they could um, go to my website, which is crudapsychservice.com, and that's spelled C-R-U-D-U-P, psychservices.com. I'm also on Instagram, same name. Um, or they can call or text 386-243-9220. Excellent, excellent. And you know, at the end of my show, I always ask my guests to say a prayer, a blessing, or an affirmation over the audience about today's topic. And so I'm going to ask you to do that for me now. Okay. So mine's short, going back to my southern roots, and I'll just say, Peace be with you. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, I praise you and I thank you, O God, for another opportunity to speak your name. I praise you and I thank you, O God, for giving us a venue in the marketplace, O God, where your name has the preeminence, O God. I lift up my wonderful guest to you today, O God. I thank you for her life. 
I thank you for her lifelong relationship with you. I thank you, O God, that you have birthed in her, O God, the heart and the desire to be a help to people. I thank you, O God, that you will anoint her footsteps. I thank you that whatever she puts her hands to will prosper in your name. Wherever her feet tread, we claim that is holy ground for you, O God. I lift up this topic, O God, of microaggressions, O God. I believe, O God, that only you can heal and reconcile the racial divide in our country and in this world, O God. I thank you, O God, that those that have listened to the show today, O God, that you, O God, by your sweet spirit will cause them to search their hearts, O God, and to see what it is that they can do, O God, to reach out to one another of different faiths, of different races, of different religions, of different cultures, O God, different ethnicities, different socioeconomic levels, O God. I thank you, O God, that you will give them a spirit of reconciliation, O God, that they will no longer look upon others based on their differences, O God, but they will look on one another with compassion and love and empathy based on those things that we have in common, O God, because everyone that you have created, O God, has a glimpse of you on the inside that we can connect with, O God. I speak life over those that have been hurt because of racism and because of microaggressions, O God. I speak life over their spirit right now, O God. I thank you, O God, that you will do the work of reparations and repairing, O God, that which has been torn asunder, O God. I thank you, O God, that you will give every person under the sound of my voice, O God, the ability in their spirit, O God, to begin to find their self-worth in, in you. And I just commit this topic. I commit the racial divide of our country. I commit situations and circumstances related to this, oh God, I just speak love and life and peace and joy and redemption, oh God, into this earth realm on your behalf. I love you. I thank you. I praise you for this opportunity to speak life to the people. We just commit this and all things concerning us and this world and this topic into your hands. In the name of your dear and precious son, I pray. Amen and amen. You have been listening to Spiritual Principles for Emotional Healing, and I am your host, Dr. Denise Johnson, and this show will be available to you to listen to on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash spiritual principles for emotional healing. And you can also hear my show on Spotify. Because I am believing God that as you repeatedly listen to these prayers, He will heal your brokenness the same way He has used these prayers to minister to my brokenness. And lastly, I want you to always remember where your spirit leads, your emotions, power, and destiny will follow.